If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Since the reign of Queen Victoria, the British monarchy have had a complex and often murky relationship with the intelligence services. It's a relationship that Richard J. Aldrich and Rory Cormack dissect in their new book, The Secret Royals. They spoke to BBC History Revealed staff writer Emma Slattery-Williams. And the first voice you'll hear is Richard's. Your book, The Secret Royals, looks at the relationship between the British monarchy and the intelligence service from the reign of Queen Victoria. How involved in intelligence had monarchs been before Queen Victoria? So... Perhaps the most famous monarch come spymaster was Elizabeth I. And to some extent, she's she's often credited with creating the modern intelligence community. There's often this idea that the kind of intelligence community we have now was replicated or originated to fight the Spanish Armada, to fight the... But actually, it was rather different. What we see under Elizabeth is these sort of private fiefdoms. We often see Elizabeth's intelligence as being associated with a figure called Walsingham. Actually, Elizabeth had about four or five spy chiefs. They were all running these things like private businesses, and they were all fighting like rats in a sack. So, Rory, I'll put this question to you. Um, I believe it was an assassination attempt in 1840 that ignited Victoria's personal interest in espionage and led to the establishment of the modern intelligence service. Could you tell us a bit more about that, please? It was. She comes onto the throne at a young age. She's led a very sheltered childhood. 
Um, but she does start to take some instructions, some lessons from her uncle, the, uh, the king of the Belgians, King Leopold, in some of the darker arts of statecraft. Um, one particularly interesting thing that he taught her was about deception and, 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 and telling her that her enemies and friends will always intercept her letters. So if she wants to try and mislead them, then she should put a little lie or, or something else in the in the in the envelope and 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 try to and try to deceive them. So she she started to get a bit of an interest in it, but it wasn't until the attempted assassination in 1840 when this really takes off because intelligence is about keeping monarchs safe. It's not just about um, informing policy or whatever. It has a very personal role for the sovereign. And she takes a obsessive, almost macabre interest in this. So it's, it's 1840. She and Albert are, are coming down Constitution Hill in their, in their carriage. They hear a gunshot and there's a, there's a, there's a scuffle and eventually a young man is, is arrested. But the very next day, Victoria goes out and starts to look for bullet holes in the wall. And she starts to play forensic detective. She's, she's grilling the Home Secretary on the latest intelligence. She wants to know who this man is, who he's working for. Is there a secret society, a continental-style secret society behind this? And she wants to know about directions that bullets travel. She wants to know what the latest material is, the latest, latest secret intelligence. Uh, and she's pestering her uh, Home Secretary, she's pestering the, the, the Prime Minister about this. Uh, and as, as we know, this was the first of many attempts on her life. And each time, she took the intelligence very, very seriously. There was another occasion where um, she found out that there was a, a man who, who wanted, to, wanted to kill her and then she, she used herself as bait. She and Albert went out, very bravely to be fair to them, uh, went out driving around their carriage with a policeman watching from the shadows, using herself as bait to try and draw this, this gunman um, back out from the crowd. So she was, she was quite brave and it did form a, a lifelong fascination with intelligence and secrecy and the, the dark arts of international statecraft. And, and exactly as Rory said, this is to some extent the foundation of the secret state. When Victoria comes to the throne, there's no real detective department in the Metropolitan Police. By the time she completes her reign um, at the end of the 19th century, there's a special branch with 600 people. Much of this is the response to threats to the royal person. What we see with this figure, particularly Edward Oxford, the person who tries to kill Victoria in 1840, is growing anxiety about revolutionaries, anarchists, chartists, these sorts of people. Victoria is particularly fixated about this political threat, but actually most of the people who attack Victoria are lone individuals who sadly are suffering from mental health problems. So I believe that um, Victoria uh, got her daughter, Princess Victoria Vicky, to become a spy in the Prussian court. How did how did that come about, and what information was she sending back to Britain? She was sending all sorts of really juicy stuff back to her mother. At this time, intelligence and statecraft was really mixed with the personal, the personal and the political. 
uh, intertwined seamlessly. And so she was sending back hundreds of letters, some of it including family gossip, what, who, what, who said what to whom. Uh, but then mixed in with that would be, here's some intentions of what the Prussian king's going to do. Here's some capabilities of his uh, of his armies. So it was really, really great stuff. And it came about, um, she married the crown prince of Prussia, Fritz, as he was known in the family, and moved, moved out to Prussia, moved in royal circles, was had a a seat at the, at the top table in the land. And for a long time, she was able to send all this great stuff back to her, her mother. And as Richard says, she was, Victoria was, was really worried about revolutionaries, about republicanism, about uh, her own dynastic interests, but also about the the physical safety of her relatives across the, across the continent. Now, we need to remember that Vicky, the daughter, was one of many royal spies. Victoria had a informal royal intelligence network, which which spanned her friends and family and relatives all the way across the continent, who were constantly writing stuff to her, bypassing the government, writing their own bits of intelligence to her, which meant that combined with Vicky, altogether, Victoria was impeccably placed she knew so much stuff. She knew way more than the Foreign Office. She knew way more than Britain's, as they were then, informal amateur secret services. And how she chose to wield that knowledge was very, very delicate, because sometimes she'd share it. And she was the best, not only intelligence gatherer, but also intelligence analyst, because she knew the ins and outs of the royal families and the dynastic things and who was marrying whom and who disliked whom. She knew this way better than the prime ministers did. So she could help interpret it. But sometimes, sometimes when the dynastic interests clashed with the foreign policy, she would withhold bits of information. She'd spin it. She'd cherry pick it to try and outmaneuver her own government and get her own way. So some of... (laughs) Uh, at a number of moments, the the royal spymaster Victoria is asking her spies to take significant risks. Vicky in Prussia sends about four thousand letters back, but the Prussians know this is going on, and her nemesis is Bismarck, the German Chancellor. Bismarck has set up a counter espionage network. He's infiltrating spies into Vicky's royal household, and they're not subtle. They are they they are they are looking at her correspondence, but they're also raiding her office and very visibly breaking into her letter drawer, um, breaking things around her room. This is a it's scare tactics, saying to Victoria's daughter, "We're watching you. We know what you're doing, and we don't like it." So Victoria was asking her daughter to take some significant risks. And because of this, the um, the influence, the, the the knowledge that Vicky has gradually gets squeezed over time because of Bismarck's spies and his intimidation. She starts off knowing all the secrets, but gradually, and she takes against Bismarck, she warns her mother furiously about the duplicity of Bismarck and the, uh, the warmongering of Bismarck. And Bismarck, unsurprisingly, sees her as a British spy 
um, turns against her, does all these intimidation tactics, and eventually squeezes her and her husband out of the, the inner circle. So Vicky becomes less useful. She tries <laughs> writing in different codes, different ciphers that only her mother has access to. Again, even the foreign office couldn't read these things. Um, but gradually, she's got less and less useful uh, information to, to give. And it's always kind of a, a victory over a good, good few years, a victory uh, to, to Bismarck in the end. So by 1870, the Franco-Prussian War, Bismarck is actually doing successful deception via these conduits against Victoria. So what was the British government's reaction to what Victoria was doing? Uh, they, they liked having access to the intelligence. They didn't know quite how much she was manipulating and picking out the best bits, um, but it often brought them into, into conflict with her. There's a, a famous example would be the, the 1864 Schleswig-Holstein War, which is one of those um, 19th century European conflicts, which is uh, terribly uh, convoluted and complicated. Give you uh, famous, famous quotes um, that, uh, that, that Palmerston gave uh, the outbreak of it when he said, there are only three men who, who knew the, the causes of the Schleswig-Holstein War. One was Prince Albert, and he is dead. One was a German professor, and he has gone mad. And the third was me, and I've forgotten. Um, so it's, it's one of those very complicated wars. But the, 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 the important thing for, for us is that Vicky, uh, that Vicky was providing her mother with intelligence about Prussian uh, intentions, about the, 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 the way the, um, the war was unfolding, the losses, the gains, detailed stuff about the weather, battle reports, all this kind of thing. And she was the best source. She was the best source. And Victoria, the Queen, used this intelligence to try to persuade the government not to support Denmark. The, the government, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary wanted to support Denmark against the Germans. Uh, Victoria, for dynastic reasons, did not want this to happen. And she used her intelligence, she used her channels, she used her best sources to outmaneuver and put pressure on the cabinet. And it won. She won. It worked. Uh, in the end, uh, the, the, the Foreign Secretary, the Prime Minister, did, did a U-turn and decided not to militarily intervene. So there's a, a, a clear example of the Queen using her own royal intelligence to meddle, to manipulate and to directly influence British foreign policy. And actually, one of her children is married into the Danish royal family. So you see not only competition between Victoria and her government, you actually see competition between Victoria's own children over these spy networks. It's absolutely fascinating. I think that's quite interesting because I think we we think that um, by the time Victoria's on the throne, she has very little to do with with government and foreign policy. But actually, she she stopped a she stopped Britain being involved in a war, which is which is quite a big deal, really. And this is what shocked me. I mean, I'll be honest. Before we sat down to start researching this book, I didn't know a great deal about Queen Victoria, and my knowledge, like most people's, was limited to this this image of the the, the, the dowdy elderly woman dressed in black, locked herself away in Windsor, mourning for most of her for most of her reign. After the death of of Albert, um, but it seems that that actually couldn't be further from the truth. That she was meddling and manipulating and constantly um, kind of <laughs> hectoring prime ministers and foreign secretaries to to do this, do that, give them more, uh, give them more, give her more intelligence. She always wanted 
the latest uh, material. And I think this, this is epitomized in a wonderful story quite late on in her reign when she's meeting the incoming uh, foreign secretary, a guy called Lord Rosebery. That's 1885, 86. Uh, he's inexperienced. He goes, on be, he goes on to become prime minister, but at this point he's, he's inexperienced, a bit, a bit wet behind the ears. He goes to meet the queen to get his, his seals of office. And she, she says to him, don't go to Mr. Gladstone. Don't go to the prime minister about these things. Come to me. I have the best intelligence sources the cabinet don't make all the big decisions. Just come to me privately, uh, because I frequently have intelligence of a very secret nature, which you might well be interested in. And when I read this, I was I was quite shocked because it's showing the monarch bypassing the government to directly try to interfere with policy using her own secret sources. And I I found that really quite striking. And I, I think one of the things we've really enjoyed about the book is looking at two women who were really powerful in international relations for the last 200 years. Britain's secret statecraft has largely been about Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth. It's two women at the top, not just passive recipients of intelligence, but real active practitioners, practitioners of spying, practitioners of deception, practitioners of action. Absolutely fascinating. So going back to before Victoria, um, European royal families were always intermarrying. Surely there would have been a bit of this before where um, they would be passing information about royal courts to each other. Do we know much about, about this, if there was information shared? Absolutely. There's hundreds of years of this. And what we see across Europe are the so-called black chambers, this is the, con it's a very modern thing. It's the convergence of spying and science and mathematics. And most of the European monarchs maintained these mini Bletchley parks where people who were really good at maths were brought in and they were breaking each other's communications. And, and in Britain, there's a family that over two, three hundred years provides most of the mathematicians, they're coming from Cambridge or Oxford, but they're working for the crown. And they are, as I say, they're a precursor to... And actually, the people at GCHQ now venerate these people as they're essentially the originators of their statecraft. So could you tell me a bit about Lord Granville? So he was the Lord President of the Council, and he apparently would tell the Queen uh, opinions um, from the ministers in her government. Um could this have had serious consequences for him? Well, not only does she have royal spies around Europe, she even has a spy inside cabinet. And he's not only kind of telling her the broad discussions of, of, of cabinet, which she would get anyway in the, the official minutes and memoranda. He's telling her individual opinions held by individual ministers, which she then uses as she's trying to put pressure over different um, over different foreign, foreign policy issues. And there's a, there's a string of examples where she uses the knowledge gleaned about different ministers' views to try to 
manipulate foreign policy. The the, the specific Holstein example is, is just one. You've also got the uh, Prussian-Austrian war a few years later. You've got the Franco-Prussian war. And all the time, she is using her sources in cabinet. She's using her sources on the continent. She's acting as a DIY intelligence analyst and then trying to, trying to um, shape things. Interestingly, not only did she have her own spies in the cabinet, she also accused um, the foreign secretary's wife, Lady Darby, of uh, of leaking secrets to the Russians at one point. So she was worried that uh, the the whilst she was happily taking leaks from from her from her side, she was very worried about leaks going to to another side. She she she, she took this very seriously. She was. She was uh, uh, badgering and hectoring and sh- shouting at people to the extent that uh, polite society were quite worried that Queen Victoria was going quite mad at one point as her Rus- uh, phobia uh, got the better of her and she's hectoring poor Lady Derby for, for leaking secrets to the, to the, to the Russians. Um, so it, she's, it's, it's intrigue abounds, I think, is the, is the conclusion of all this. There's so much intrigue, discreet diplomacy, spying, leaks... And she's right in the thick of it. And quite frankly, she loves it. And what Victoria really loves is a kind of 007 James Bond figure with twirling moustaches. And and this particular incident is about a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Wellesley. He's a relative of the Duke of Wellington. He's a master spy in Moscow. He's really good at getting, borrowing secret papers from Russian ministries, copying them, sending them back to London. And this is the stuff that leaks out. It leaks out, we think, perhaps through Lady Derby. It goes to the French ambassador. It goes to the Russian ambassador. And in no time at all, Wellesley is outed in Moscow as Victoria's spy. And Victoria is absolutely incandescent with rage. And she's she's waging a private war against the Foreign Secretary and his wife on behalf of her flamboyant 007 agent in Moscow. So today the monarchy is uh, supposed to be neutral. Was was the same supposed to apply for Victoria? Absolutely not. So clearly Queen Victoria is pursuing several quite political campaigns. As Rory says, it's partly about her Russophobia, but our other big political campaign is against leftists and anarchists and subversives. So in the 19th century, Britain has this fantastic tradition of providing political asylum or providing refuge for all sorts of figures, nationalists like Maxini, uh, leftists like Karl Marx. <laughs> London was kind of a menagerie of, of some of Europe's most colourful political figures. Queen Victoria hated this. All her relatives are writing to her from Europe saying, why are you hosting all these terrible people? And so there's a constant battle between her and people like Palmerston, people who are radically liberal. They want to support these revolutionaries. Victoria doesn't like it. And at one point, Palmerston sanctions a covert operation where they're secretly funneling arms to Sicilian rebels fighting against the Italian king. And Victoria goes absolutely nuts. And it's this constant, this constant fight. Uh, and she's she's getting she's getting letters from from her relatives 
talking about assassinations, saying so-and-so has just died, so-and-so has been stabbed, so-and-so is, is in the hands of the mob, um, and, and she's worried about this, uh, and doesn't mince her words. At one point she says, these, these evil Republicans must be exterminated. She, do, she doesn't mince her words at all. Um, and that is, is clearly very, very different context, historically and constitutionally, from the world in which Queen Elizabeth reigns now. And it, it started to change after Queen Victoria. Edward VII was a bit disappointed. He didn't quite have his mother's uh, influence. And, and gradually, it becomes more what we know today. But under Victoria, no, she was very happy and willing to, to meddle and manipulate and interfere. It's remarkably modern in the sense that for 50 years through her reign, Victoria's fighting this political battle over issues of asylum, issues of human rights, issues of political liberty. All the way through through her reign, she's trying to promote European-style secret policing. She wants, she wants revolutionaries in Britain to be put under close surveillance, and she also wants their rights to be changed. So every 10 years, a new piece of legislation is introduced into Parliament to try and throw these people out. Um, even in her last decade, in 1894, she's bringing in something called the Aliens Act. But once again, every 10 years, it's defeated. The British Parliament will not roll back on their liberal, inclusive agenda of welcoming these revolutionaries from Europe. Victoria hates it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They never got any response. At one point, they said, oh, do you really want this stuff? Shouldn't we stop? And immediately, Buckingham Palace said, no, we love this stuff. Send us more stories. This is what we read over the breakfast table. So, uh, so you know, the, the, the Windsor Archive is, is a wonderful place. And one day, perhaps, um, its secrets will be, uh, be open to the British public. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
So were the public aware at all of how much Victoria was getting involved? And if they were, what did what did they think? No, they they weren't. This all this all happened uh, behind closed doors. They worried at one point that Albert was a was a spy. He wasn't, and there was um, propaganda kind of whipped, whipped it up a little bit. And they ended up protesting outside uh, Tower of London for. Uh, Albert's head, which, as you can imagine, really, really annoyed uh, Queen Victoria. Um, but most of it took place behind closed doors. And to give perhaps the most famous example, in 1844, there was a big scandal about surveillance over the exact kind of issues that Richard had just been outlining. When uh, a guy, a nationalist guy called Giuseppe Mazzini, who had been trying to foment revolutions on the continent, was hiding out in in London, was convinced that the Brits were spying on him, were opening his letters, reading them, and resealing them, which they were. Uh, to catch out the the, the British uh, doing this, he sneakily put a poppy seed, a grain of sand, and a, and a strand of hair inside one of these envelopes, and he posted it to himself. And sure enough, it came in the post, he opened it up, and the telltale contents uh, contents had been had, had fallen out because somebody somewhere had opened it and read it. Now he was he was appalled. He went public. The MPs were completely appalled. The, the members of Parliament. So this was so thoroughly un-British. This was like those naughty secret policemen, the Fouchés on the continent, uh, which which we just don't do with political police. Um, all the while, Victoria, in private, is saying, "Hang on." It's not. This isn't so bad. Um, bearing in mind, one, she's been reading this stuff all her life. She's been intercepting everyone else's letters, uh, and she writes all this stuff in a diary. She she says, you know, today I intercepted X's letter. It was quite funny. Today I intercepted Y's letter. I learned this. So for her, this is quite normal, and she doesn't see a problem with it because she's being uh, lobbied by her relatives. The Britain needs to do much more to clamp down on people like Mazzini. So behind the scenes, she's offering support to the Home Secretary. She doesn't go public. Uh, I think she prefers to operate in, in the shadows almost and use that influence cautiously and carefully. Hence why the public image of her was always um, the woman locked away at Windsor grieving. And that that shows that public-private. Uh, the, the, the public image was one of the, the the sad widow, but in private she's she's manipulating, she's meddling, and nowhere is that more uh, epitomised than in the than in the Mussini affair. And Victoria's treading on slightly delicate territory here because, of course, spying, authoritarianism. This is something that's associated with the absolutist monarchs of Europe, with Frederick of Prussia, Joseph of, Joseph of Austria. And of course, the British royal family isn't British. And there's this idea that, you know, uh, people like Victoria, people like Albert want to introduce these un-British European spying methods into the, the wonderful liberal British polity. There's quite a lot of tension there. So as you just said, Victoria was a fan of opening other people's letters. Did she do this with her own family? Was she reading Albert's letters? Well, Albert's Albert's kind of position in all this is really fascinating um, because, you know, Albert and Victoria marry in 1840. And when Albert and Victoria marry, Albert is initially frozen out. 
So all these boxes of secret material are coming to Victoria and Albert's, uh, Albert is, is, Victoria's just like, no, 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 you don't see this stuff. But Albert is really efficient. He's meticulous. He's kind of the perfect private secretary. And gradually he's drawn in. Gradually he becomes more important, and particularly during the Crimean War, because Albert has military knowledge that Victoria doesn't have. And he becomes absolutely indispensable. He effectively becomes a one-person war cabinet for Victoria. And it's also triggered by uh, her pregnancies as well. Um, his way in was when she was heavily pregnant and struggling to deal with all the all the, the, the papers and boxes herself. And that, that's when she started to rely on him a little bit more. Um, so uh, she had this very... It, she, she, she struggled with that because, as Richard says, she, she didn't want to, to let him in at first. And it was only when she kind of had to. And, and then she realised how important and, and, and helpful he was. Uh, but there's no evidence of, of her reading his letters. She read various relatives' letters, um, but one's on the, on the continent. King Leopold of the Belgians, for example, she read his letters and on one occasion saw that he was he was slagging her off, uh, which didn't go down very well. Uh, but I've not seen any evidence that she read her, her kind of closest family members' letters. So I believe that um, when her son, Prince Alfred, um, he married into the, the Russian royal family, but he failed to be a useful spy in the Russian court. So then Victoria turned to an army officer, Frederick Burnaby. Can you tell me a bit about him? He sounds quite interesting. He was one of those classic Victorian era soldier come adventurer come spy um come all round interesting character and she found these 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 men who operated on the on the frontiers of empire in the great game really really interesting because she was used to being given all the best stuff she was used to having the best sources uh, and outmaneuvering her own government. When it came to, to, to Germany and Europe, she was number one. Unfortunately, this all collapsed when it came to imperial matters and the great game and India and Russia and Afghanistan, when she hoped she'd have a source inside the Russian royal family. But the marriage was never as happy as, as Fritz and, and Vicky's. They didn't spend as much time uh, in, the, in the Russian court. He passed on the odd interesting little bit, but nowhere near the, the 4,000 wonderful letters that Vicky sent. So Victoria opens, casts her net slightly more widely and finds this Burnaby chap. It's just so, so interesting. He's going, ac- going across the, the outer fringes of empire on horseback, um, writing books, seeing seeing Russian military manoeuvres, judging the mood in frontier towns, what tribes can be subverted, who can be bribed, what are the Russians up to, how secure is empire. And, and he reports back to the Queen. He's one of many that she invites back to Windsor to regale her with these stories of spies and horseback riding across snowy mountains. You can just picture her uh, sitting at the dinner table, just having a having a great time. I, I, I think this is, as Rory says, this is this is to some extent when Victoria's spy network goes bad. <laughs> it's when the you know the wonderful stuff from the royal network runs out. She turns to these kind of Lord Flashheart characters, people who are famous for riding across Central Asia backwards on a camel. Uh, Burnaby was a pioneer balloonist with twirling mustachios, and you know they're 
They're flamboyant spies. They come back from a spying mission. The first thing they do is write a memoir saying how they've stabbed a few Russians. And Victoria loves this, but it is a diplomatic disaster. And it's also about the politicization of intelligence. Victoria is less concerned about the accuracy of the narrative. What she loves, what she loves is some good anti-Russian stories. If you've got good Russophobia, Victoria is all over it. This might be quite a tricky question to answer, but if Victoria had lived a little bit longer, do you think her kind of love of espionage might have altered the course of the First World War? That is a good question. It's one we've never never been asked before. Let me think. Um, so she she had excellent networks on Germany. She but this was dwindling. This this was dwindling. So I think the fact that that Vicky had been had been frozen out. Um, this wasn't you know the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties anymore. Um, so probably probably not because her her intelligence network, if she'd been around in 1910, 11, 12, wasn't as good as it was in in, in the eighteen sixties. Um, so I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say yes, because (laughs) Victoria absolutely, personally, had the measure of the Kaiser. So she had great emotional intelligence. She knew what the Kaiser loved. The young Kaiser loved dressing up. The more flamboyant, the better. And the Kaiser, as a young man, turns up at Balmoral for Christmas. And Victoria has prepared for him a special uniform in yellow tartan. And you've never seen the Kaiser more happy. (laughs) So there was this kind of... The Kaiser was a difficult figure. Most of the members of the royal families in Europe found him awkward to deal with. But Victoria got on really well with him and understood him. Perhaps there would have been a personal connection. So did Edward VII continue using his own intelligence like his mother? He tried, but he was really irritated that he wasn't quite as trusted as his mother. His mother had been on the throne for half a century. She had wonderful networks. She was experienced. Um, Edward comes along, and as Prince of Wales, he's seen as a bit of a liability. And he's you know, there's a black male hanging over him. He's been cavorting around the the sordid Parisian underworld. Um, he's a, he's a bit of a security risk, uh, a playboy prince. And when he comes in, the Foreign Office, the Prime Minister are not as keen to trust him with the greatest secrets of state as they were with his mother, who had, who had spent half, literally half a century um, doing this stuff. So he does have. He does have some networks. He has various family members. He has a high society set. He's friends with people who know stuff. And it's it's very, very informal, but he's not embedded in it as a in, as, as a head of an almost like an informal intelligence network in quite the same way uh, as as his mother, partly because he was she she builds up for, for 50 years, and partly because he's wasn't seen as 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 trustworthy. He was he was a bit loose lipped. So skipping forward a bit to probably like the pinnacle of of espionage with the Second World War, how involved was um, George VI with the intelligent work that was going on? So George VI initially is a little bit distrusted by the intelligence services. He's been a real enthusiast for appeasement, 
and of course his brother has abdicated <laughs> as soon as as soon as his brother edward abdicated he nipped off uh, to germany in 1937 to have tea with hitler not a good sign really so so there's a little bit of anxiety um in 1939 but very quickly george VI demonstrates his credentials partly because during the battle of britain he makes it very clear that unlike other European monarchs, he's not going to cut and run. He's going to fight. Um, actually, the royal family are all practicing with weapons in the gardens of Buckingham Palace, ready to sh- shoot their German paratroopers. Um, this isn't. Um, this is this is genuine, but it's also theatre. It's sending out a message to people like the American ambassador in London: We are not going to run. We are going to stand and fight. So send us lend lease and supporters. So. This is all really quite important. Have you got any good examples of when some royal intelligence has been bungled? <laughs> I'll go back to Victoria while, while Richard has a has a think. Um, my, my my example will be the uh, Franco-Prussian War, when Victoria still has pretty good networks. Um, Vicky's still sending her stuff back, saying Bismarck is. Uh, agitating for a conflict with France. Um, He's setting it all up. He's laying the groundwork. He is the aggressor here. He's the bad guy. Um, Victoria gets all this, and she's normally a very astute uh, intelligence consumer and analyst. But on this occasion, she she, she fluffs it up completely because she lets her, her Francophobia get on top of her. One country she hates more than the Russians, and it's the French. Um, so even though she's got impeccable sources saying Bismarck's doing this, don't listen to the Foreign Office, they're getting it wrong, Bismarck, 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 she thinks, nah, it must be the French to being the, being the, being the aggressors here. They, it, 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 that's the kind of thing the French would do. Uh, this rampant Francophobia is colouring her judgment, so she completely ignores outstanding intelligence and, and gets it horribly wrong. And that's a that's as clear-cut an example of a, a royal intelligence blunder that I can think of. I, I think the most frequent royal intelligence blunder is not in terms of intelligence, but their communication security. So something which, you know, generations of royals have been told about is be careful of the telephone. Regard the telephone as kind of like a, a coiled rattlesnake. But it's very difficult uh, to live your life without communication because the telephone letters is how you contact friends being a royal is often quite a kind of lonely existence and the classic example of this is edward the eighth edward the eighth knows he's being listened to by armies of journalists and every secret service in the world and after a while he just says "Ah, you know i can't be doing with this i'm just gonna say what i think i'm just gonna behave how I want to. Um, and there's there's a marvellous moment immediately before the abdication in 1936 when Edward is trying to conspire with his closest friends, Churchill, Lloyd George, people like Max Beaverbrook, the press, the press baron. They all know they're being listened into. So Edward will pick up the phone at night and try and talk about conspiracy. <laughs> And all his friends were completely horrified because they knew MI5, MI6, the world's press, the French. They were all listening in. And you can 
you can just imagine their faces. But Edward VIII didn't care. He just got on with it. So both the Secret Service and the monarchy are incredibly private and close-guarded. How easy was it for you to research this book? It was incredibly, incredibly difficult. We we are historians of of, of espionage, of, of secret statecraft, if you like. And we've been dealing with trying to write histories of the secret services for our entire career. Um, but in comparison, goodness me, the royal family makes the makes MI6 look like WikiLeaks. They they really guard their guard their secrets very very closely. Um, there is nothing, practically nothing, in the national archives about the royal the royal family. They meet the, the monarch meets um, the the prime minister every week. There's there's no record of these meetings. There's not even any minutes taken. And when we were sitting in, in queue in the National Archives, um, I found a file about the royal meeting, the prime ministerial meeting on a, on a Tuesday. And I thought, oh my goodness, has one actually slipped through the net? Am I going to get uh, an insight into what the monarch and prime minister uh, discuss? And I eagerly called this file up, um, opened opened the, the, the dusty jacket and Inside, it literally just was said, um, would you mind, would the palace mind if Harold Macmillan wears tails tonight to meet the Queen? <laughs> and that was it. And I think that, that gives a, a sense of the, the barren landscape in which uh, in which we had to work. So all the, all the best secrets are in the Royal Archive at Windsor. And <laughs> this is a place that material is continually flowing into, but no, it's like a black hole. Things are sucked in, but they never go out. But one of the duties of the British embassies around the world is to report on stories about the monarchy, send them in to London, send them to Buckingham Palace. Um, One of the hotspots for this was the British embassy in France because the French press absolutely love the the British monarchy. And they're always doing crazy stories about how Princess Anne had the whole Everton football team in, in in her bedroom, how the Queen Mother had died and had been replaced by a body double. All this stuff was being sent in uh, by by junior diplomats in, in in British diplomats in France through the the 70s and the 80s. And they never got any response. At one point they said, Oh, do you really want this stuff? Should shouldn't we stop? And immediately Buckingham Palace said, No, we love this stuff. Send us more stories. This is what we read over the breakfast table. So, uh, so you know, the, the the Windsor Archive is is a wonderful place, and one day perhaps um, its secrets will be uh, be open to the British public. That was Richard J. Aldrich and Rory Cormack. Richard is Professor of International Security at the University of Warwick. And Rory is Professor of International Relations at the University of Nottingham. The Secret Royals, Spying in the Crown from Victoria to Diana, is out now, published by Atlantic Books. They've also written an article on Queen Victoria and espionage in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.